0: Retirement Blues Goodbye, a book by Richard Cowley. Chapter Thirteen, Episode One. A quote relevant to Chapter Thirteen. He is rich, who is content with least, for contentment is the wealth of nature. Socrates, 469 BC to 399 BC. Richmond. To Danby Whisk. Fourteen miles. Five hours walking. Both the guidebook and Wainwright's writings suggest that the stretch from Richmond to Danby Whisk is an uninspiring trudge. Whilst the unspectacular landscape made their lack of enthusiasm understandable, our experience was vastly different thanks to a triumph of eccentric encounters. Once across the Swale River, we were heading for open country, leaving the hustle and bustle of Richmond behind. On the riverside roadway, we came upon an elderly couple making a great show of being at once bemused and exasperated. They were dressed for trekking in an expensive, stylish way. Their headdress and demeanour suggested they were American. I shot them a pleasant, G'day, and got a cat's bum face in response. At that, Peter and I quickened our step to put some distance between ourselves and their sourness. Down a wooded lane, which we mistook for the C2C trail, a small sign read, This is not the coast-to-coast path. And of course it wasn't. The path led to a private house. What a witty and wise way to discourage unwanted visitors whilst putting confused trampers back onto the correct trail. We settled into an easy rhythm, in harmony with the day and the terrain, and were making good progress amidst a confusion of paths on a low hillside. We were about to sally forth on what Peter had identified as the most likely direction, when a cantankerous voice bellowed from amongst the trees below. You coaster coasters! demanded the grumpy face we'd passed earlier. Yes, I called back. We're heading for Robin Hood's Bay. This the sea to sea trail? He persisted. I certainly hope so, I replied. This guidebook sucks, he roared, waving the same guidebook Peter and I were using. We'd guessed right. They were Americans. In a large field, signed as a military training area, the way became confusing as several well-defined animal tracks merged, then found out in all directions. We kept faith with our course and continued towards the far hedge. At that moment, Hugh, who we'd first encountered at the Crown and Mitre in Bampton, made a surprise appearance. Looking heroically bewildered, he zigzagged towards us from the opposite direction. In the wooded edge of the field, a couple scurried back and forth through the trees and undergrowth, seemingly trying to get a fix on a landmark. Evidently, there was uncertainty about which path to take. I'm aware that history is supposed to repeat itself, but what happened was uncanny. I felt entrapped in a reenactment of a scene played out by Hugh in Bampton one week earlier. Whilst Peter studied the guidebook to verify our heading, the other three raced up flourishing maps and compasses, yelling instructions and flapping their arms in all directions. On that cool, easy on the eye day, confusion reigned in a field near historic Richmond. Peter and I slipped away and made for the far side of the field, where the landmarks confirmed our direction. I was pleased to be free of the belligerent certainty meted out by dogmatic purists who disdain guidebooks preferring to use an ordnance survey map and a prismatic compass to find their way, even though they have scant comprehension of either. A little way on, the landscape changed. Stone walls made way for hawthorn hedges cattle-replaced sheep, and fallow meadows were tilled and sown. We had entered the fertile Vale of Mowbray, at the northern end of the Vale of York, the long, flat, wooded plain between Swaledale and the Cleveland Hills. The rich farmland wasn't solely good for cash crops. It was also a winemaker's field of plenty, with wide swathes of elderbush hedges, heavy with purple berries, waiting to be harvested for fermentation. Just beyond the village of Colburn, Saxon for Cold Brook, we met Jake. He was a lifelong local who, in a different time and place, could have been mistaken for a 19th century Irish tinker, doing the rounds, sharpening knives, or repairing holes in pans and buckets. The rugged up Wellington-booted traveller was carrying a generous assortment of fishing paraphernalia. The only kit I didn't spy amongst the knives, pails, ropes, sponges, and quiver of rods was a stick of dynamite, which I believe can be used to stimulate fish to sun themselves on the water's surface. One of me hobbies, course fishing, he informed us. If I catch perch, roach, or pike, I unhook em, and put em back in the stream. If I catch a bigger. I take a photo for the local rag, he continued with a proud smirk. Trudging along the muddy track, we chatted about fishing and pondered upon the prospect of life after death. Whilst negotiating a narrow gate, the scurrying couple we'd encountered earlier with Hugh whizzed up from behind us and tried to barge past us. With acres of empty land all round, they tried to force their way in front of us, as though we were blocking them from catching the last bus home on a freezing winter's night. Once through the gate, the single-minded couple zoomed off to the left towards the river in the direction shown on the map. They're going the wrong way, said Jake with a scornful sneer. You, walkers, are always doing that. The quickest way is along the car track and through the farm. I wouldn't put you wrong. We took the shortcut, leaving Jake to make his way to a favourite fishing spot on the riverbank. Moments later, Hugh galloped up, yelling, Get here, man! The prospect of taking the shortcut held no appeal in itself. However, the wicked pleasure of getting ahead of the scurrying couple was too good to resist. I wanted to savour their surprise when they barged past us for a second time further along the trail. As we neared the farmhouse, the two elderly Americans entered the field and followed us, ignoring the correct path shown in the guidebook. We needed to make good time to get in front of the scurrying couple, and to keep ahead of the Americans, who appeared to be closing in on us with gritty determination. Last night I ate Italian, and it was perfection, stated Hugh gleefully, and this morning I was sweating pure garlic. Behind the green door groaned Peter, already knowing the answer. "'That's right,' Hugh replied. "'How do you know?' Peter didn't reply, and I lifted the pace a little. What a blow it was to discover the cart-track was fenced off with new barbed wire. To reclaim the path, we had to cross a deeply plowed field, which would be tedious and slow going. The resolute scurrying couple scampered into view through the trees up ahead. In no time... They'd crossed in front of us, and were on their way towards Danby Whisk. They'd triumphed, whilst blissfully unaware of the cynical put-down coming their way. I wondered how many millions of times rivalries flare up in which one protagonist or another remains completely oblivious to the tussle in which they are unwittingly engaged. To regain the trail, we had to scale a barbed-wire fence and brave a luxuriant bank of stinging nettles with patience and delicacy of movement all came through unscathed when jake the fisherman emerged from the trees and waved encouragement i cursed him and forgot the twinge of guilt i felt for the elderly american couple who had followed us then and there i determined to be wary of good intentioned local knowledge and to pay greater attention to our guidebook and map as we neared the site of st giles hospital which was operational during the thirteenth century, I became acutely aware of an unsettling tremor. It wasn't the corpse of plague victims rising from their graves, but the thunderous traffic rumbling along the A1 motorway. After the luxury of stillness, it was somewhat disconcerting to be confronted by the fast lane reality of twenty-first century commerce in action. The noise and speed and otherworldliness was debilitating, intrusive, and alien to a contented, quiet mind. Beneath the slab structure of the motorway bridge, the riverbed was alive with workmen in grubby hard hats and stained oilskins. Where once sleek salmon glided through crystal pools, battered machinery roared about in a deadly dance of destruction, approved or ignored by environmental authorities. The thunderous reverberation of traffic overhead and the clatter of machinery echoing beneath the bridge numbed my mind and knotted my insides. I think it possible that hell and Guantanamo Bay are wired for a tortured cacophony of traffic noise sourced from beneath the road bridge at Brompton-on-Swale. We broke free from the trauma and legged it over Catrick Bridge to the peace and quiet of the fields beyond. On TV, Cataract Racecourse appears as a calm place suitable for the sport of kings. In reality, it's squeezed between a thunderous noisy motorway and a busy major road. The racecourse is built on the site of the Roman fort called Cataractovium. The fort's ancient supply road was purloined as foundations for the motorway. Isn't it odd how some places are always changing whilst other places change but little? 1,600 years after the Roman legions deserted Cataractovium, the nearby town of Cataric still remains a garrison town. What a rich history the region is built upon. In all probability, there was a Celtic settlement on the river bank before the Romans arrived with their fasces and taxes. After 400 years, the Romans abandoned the country to the Saxon invaders. Later, the Vikings tried to absorb the area into the Norse Empire. King Harold defeated the colonists, only to be killed himself by the Normans, second cousins to the Vikings. William Wallace and his Scots followers had ambitions in the area, but were driven back over the border. From the bubbling cauldron of history, there emerged the current occupants, the English. This mongrel nation of warmongers recently braved a five-battle war in an extended tribal dispute. Only good luck and their tenacious spirit allowed them to defeat the win-at-all-costs Aussies to retain the ashes. To be free of the debilitating traffic clamour and the acid taste of unburnt diesel was heavenly. However, no sooner had the rustle of leaves and the refreshing gurgle of a gushing stream eased our discomfort than we were overwhelmed by the cloying, sticky stench of decomposing flesh." the putrefying remains of a dozen or so aborted pig-fetus were strewn across the path i held my breath and jogged quickly away to where the air was fresh and breathable for all its history brompton-on-swale is a place best forgotten